I mean, I think that unstructured data is a real pain because the rules, the uh, best practices, any sort of automation is completely useless, you know, other than pushing documents around if we rely on the contents of those documents. Welcome to the Insurance Innovators Unscripted, the show dedicated to innovation in the insurance industry. Each episode, you'll get a dose of thought leadership from the industry's top business minds, influencers, innovators, and executive leaders. If you want to transform your corner of the industry and exchange innovative ideas, you need to subscribe to this podcast. Now here's your host, Abel Travis. Hey everyone, welcome to the Insurance Innovators Unscripted podcast, where we discuss insurance innovation. So hopefully you had the opportunity to listen to part one of the Reuters um, insurance event. And, you know, that is about transforming underwriting, you know, as we're living in the world of new risk. And if you haven't, just go back one episode um, and listen to that intro and opening before you come to this, because this is part two. And we're really going to dive deep into a lot of the information that we kicked off in part one, especially around the unstructured data using third party data, uh, continuous and frictionless underwriting, you know, all of the things that's really going to help to drive uh, that notion of what it takes to really transform underwriting in this world, you know, especially with what we've seen with what we've talked about in that first segment, you know, cyber risk and um, a lot of the the, the challenges that we faced in regards to um, COVID-19. So, you know, I am hopeful that you're getting a lot out of this so far. Um, you know, if you have any questions or anything, I know you're not going to be able to ask questions uh, as a part of the, the show because this was pre-recorded. But send me a message via LinkedIn. I'm Abel Travis, A-B-E-L Travis on LinkedIn. Um, also, you know, feel free to, uh, you know, send a message to any of the panelists if you go to insuranceinnovators.co. Um, you know, click on blog. You, you, you'll see the names and direct uh, links to the LinkedIn to the LinkedIn profiles of the panelists that were uh, part of this Reuters events panel. So, you know, with that said, here we go. So with that, thank you again to the panel. Fantastic conversation. To the attendees, you can keep asking questions. You don't have to stop. Uh, this conversation is likely to spark more so by all means, but we do have a lot already. I'm going to start with one. Um, this touches on something from actually from a few of you um, I think particularly Janet, it, it might have been sparked by your comments about um, the the non-value added time or the repetitive time that underwriters are spending on dealing with the process pieces of it, rekeying, going through the submission documents. Um, so I'll, I'll start with this one and, and Janet, I'm gonna throw it to you to begin with, but we will go around. Uh, the question is one of the biggest challenges of commercial underwriting is the unstructured data. And I think this varies on different lines of business, more so in specialty lines, less so maybe in some of the main street kind of BOP and GL and more, uh, you know, auto lines where it's, it's more factual data that it just sort of is what it is. Um, but you've got submission emails with accord forms or not, you've got different kinds of schedules, maybe it's a competitor's app or a competitor schedule that you have to make sense of. Last run attachments, of course, they all look different and they're often PDFs and not necessarily data PDFs. They might be images, so you can't copy and paste out of them. Um, it's hard for bots to make sense of them. So we've got a lot of different data that isn't easily ingested all the time. And underwriters or underwriting support staff spend a significant amount of effort analyzing and manually entering that data into rating systems or worse yet, it doesn't get in there or it's just uploaded as an attachment and the data never gets sort of uh, made into useful data. So um, 
in person would love to hear your expert opinions on that challenge of unstructured data and is that something that you've been addressing in the past year is that something that um, maybe moving to more third-party data and other kinds of, of ways of making um, these sort of you know underwriting decisions Eugene you had said it's like the revolutionary change what if we did underwriting in a wholly new way off of different data does that solve for it but this is a meaty problem. I'd love to, to just hear some thoughts about how we deal with the world of unstructured data in underwriting. So Janet, Janet start with you since I think it, it was sparked by your comments. So it's absolutely everything that you said and more, and it's ugly. And Allied World has a wide range of businesses from the largest insureds to our smallest insureds. So in terms of where we started on due diligence, I was focused on the most complex. I was focused on all the unstructured loss runs, focused on underwriters who have to summarize five to 10 years of loss history. And it all comes in from different carriers in different formats with different terminology, although the terminology ultimately maps to one thing or one insurance term. Um, I was also focused on large schedules, whether it was commercial autos, trucks, property schedules, cap modeling. But in the five weeks of our due diligence, we find all of that terrible unstructured accord, every variety of any type of information can be received by our underwriting team. But we also found quicker and sooner opportunities for just rekeying data. And we took what they're ingesting into their rating tools and we identified the quick wins versus a more long-term solution. And so the language in the vendors that we've partnered with is lift and shift. And I would say to all of you, you cannot pick your future state until you intimately understand every keystroke on that underwriter's desk. And really the challenge to make this successful is to see what's common across the different rating mechanisms because the rating mechanism for each underwriting team is different. So what kernels could we draw from to again get at what we're focused on, which is some level of corporate standardization, not everything can be, but where can we take advantage of the items that are common to then solve those as low-lying opportunities for change because you have to take change one step at a time without disrupting the incredible market that we're in today, where our underwriters are able to grow our company the way it's being grown today. So I hope that helps, but it's, it's a lot. I just piggyback on what Jen said. I mean, I think that like as a, like as, a, as obviously an underlying workflow system provider, the unstructured data is a real pain. Right, because you know, like the rules, the the uh, best practices, that any sort of automation is completely useless. You know, other than pushing documents around, if we rely on the contents of those documents, so that's where we see things. I mean, we are investing. There are a lot of tools that are invested, uh, a lot of people and tools available around what's called robotic process automation. It's a fancy, fancy word for scraping stuff and sticking it in the field. Um, and, and, and the good thing about insurance is that, so you can talk about unstructured data, but I think you could break it down. I mean, there's certain things that live in forms and they live in forms in relatively the same way. Right. And so like, it just, you know, so we've been trying to, we've been investing in like 
basically form ingestion. Um, it's, oh, it's remarkable to me how many forms there are. So it's a sort of a never ending, it's a long march. Um, loss run formats. I mean, we have, we, we, we've actually sort of mapped the most common loss run formats. We've ingested those, put them in. I think large schedules are more complicated, but large schedules is, is next on our list. I mean, I think that that's, that's certainly one category. I think then there are other categories of, of unstructured data that are not standardized and those become much, much harder, right? Those just, and, uh, and I, I think that, um, it would be great to see a world where, <clears throat> where those forms would be 100% ingested, put stuck into fields, those lost runs, those schedules. I think that would, that would improve the situation, current situation immensely. You know, I, I wanted to, um, I wanted to talk about this because that is absolutely something that we've been targeting over the past few years. And, and essentially, you know, um, I, I think every so often we can talk about it in the context of text data, but we have to remember that unstructured data is not only just the text, right? It's the video, it's the photos, it's, you know, the, the, the text that we're getting on the underwriting applications and so on and so forth. Um, and, um, you know, as we're looking at the capabilities, uh, you know, for us, what we've done was, uh, what was a handful of things. First and foremost, for especially for the text, um, we've, we've de deployed some capabilities around RPA robotic process automation in order to lift and load some of that information, especially as you're looking at, you know, hundreds of lines of, of losses on, on loss runs or information that may wind up coming in, um, you know, from, from some of our agents as they're hoping for us to, to potentially underwrite the, these policies that are coming in. I, I think the other thing, though, that's extremely important is not just um, uh, you know, lifting and loading that text, but really having the ability to understand what that unstructured data is telling you, right? So, um, you know, uh, creating and building and, and leveraging um, artificial intelligence and machine learning um, with more cognitive type capabilities that will then help you to, um, you know, pick up, lift and load and structure the data in a way that's consumable by our underwriters. You know, the example that we've actually done that with, that with photos, videos, and text is actually in the claims world. You know, so in, in workers' compensation, I mean, you, you could imagine, right, if you're, um, if, if there's a, a worker that, that, that's getting injured, for example, um, and, uh, you know, there might be uh, the, the need for that individual to go to a doctor and that doctor to write a prescription, well, that prescription could then drive another, uh, another issue um, with that worker, you know, especially if it's, uh, related to, to opioids, and it could potentially have some other um, some other um, issues if, 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 as they work together, right? So, you know, when you look at the massive amounts of data that's in the system, it has to be able to discern not only, you know, the, the fact that there's been a claim, for example, and what the claims adjuster has put in that, in that, uh, that box for unstructured text, but also where there might have been a prescription that was put in place and then, you know, take that and start a trend and try to figure out if there may be multiple comorbidities that's driving a, a worse loss outcome. You know, so um, there's, a, there's a lot of ways in which, you know, we've been looking at really leveraging partnerships with InsureTechs as well as development um, of our own models and algorithms in order to be able to understand what that data is telling us and then apply it to the underwriting process for both underwriting as well as claims. Yeah. Ryan, if, yeah. If yeah. I, yeah, go ahead, Stephanie. Yeah. Oh, if I may, I think it's also a question of whether or not, like, does the unstructured data matter? 
just because like we've always asked for that information, it doesn't mean that we need it going forward. So I think we have to take a step back and really challenge our, our product experts and whatnot to ask the question, is it a nice to have? Or do we really need it to make an informed underwriting decision? Or can we supplement it with external data that's as good enough? And also going back to my earlier point, I think you also have to look at the unstructured data from a segmentation. Does is maybe our threshold to be able to try to solve the unstructured data means more on the larger accounts. Maybe you don't have the, the appetite to do something on the larger accounts and you have to get to the root cause of, we have hundreds of different applications in the industry that are coming in. So can we potentially bypass that and have information come in through our own funnel? I think those are the types of questions that we should also be asking and not just trying to solve the unstructured data. Yeah, it's, it's hard when we start from a place of, well, these are the questions we've been asking. So which ones can we get rid of? That it's, that's a different exercise than what do we actually need to know? Because you get into a lot of, well, we've always, and that's, that's not an underwriting rule. We've always, you know, it, there needs to be some sense of what the exposure is from the information you're getting. And if it's not serving that, then maybe, you know, you need to ask something else or nothing at all, but it's hard to do when you're starting from that list of 119 or whatever questions and you're trying to pare it back. It's not the same exercise. Um, we, uh, we have a question about compliance, which is always an exciting topic, but I think it matters. When we start thinking about new sources of data, other ways of looking at data, processing it, um, invariably, you know, the question of, is that redlining? Is there bias in it? That's going to that's gonna come up. Um, in commercial lines in particular, how have you seen the compliance question come about? Is How are you navigating that, especially in a, a time where suddenly you had to be much more likely to turn to third-party data and, and digitization of how you're taking data in um, and you know how are regulators going to look at that? So if we can touch on the compliance question, I think that'd be that's a great one. Someone want to jump in on compliance? I'll, I'll start because that's the yeah. other side of my role in addition to underwriting operations, um, responsible for the controls and standards in the U.S. for Hiscox. So I think the question with regards to compliance, it's, it's always very important. Insurance is regulated um, at the state level. And if you're a Lloyd syndicate, you also have London at play. So you always need to strive to make sure that you're not being discriminatory. So, and it's, and going back, it's a threshold question, like different carriers may have a different tolerance level for taking on risk. But with regards to outside data, as long as you use it consistently and uniformly, where in good faith, you can say, I have two plumbing companies in their identical risk. And if they go through the funnel and have the application of the external data applied, they'll come out with the same terms and conditions and pricing. And to be able to say that we're being consistent and not negatively impacting the consumers because the states care about the consumers in addition to our premium tax, we pay them, but they want to make sure that their constituents are protected. Sure, sure. Um, anyone else have a view on this? Eugene, yeah, you just came off. Yeah, yeah I was just going to say that it's pretty quick. I mean, I think that like, um, you know, in analytics, right, we're 
vendors, including us, were generating risk scores, right? And weeks like a credit score is a kind of risk score, and that's inherently has sort of some, you know, has some controversy around it. I think that that you know we get asked, and I think any any insurer should ask their vendor, right? Like obviously you want to know like is this risk score predictive? You know how do you generate the model? Tell me more about why it's the best available option for me. But also you have to ask sort of what goes into it, right? Because if you if you're if what if the data sources that go into it have sort of bias in them, have discriminatory aspects, you can pretty much guarantee that the outcome, even if you know, because the models are are not you know easily understood, like we can't like decompose them. But you have to be careful about what goes into them, right? So we have to expose to our customers, meaning as a vendor to insurers, both sort of why the model is great and show them the list and blah, 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 but also at the same time, sort of here's what goes into it so that you can feel comfortable that sort of the, those, that you can explain this as non-discriminatory to the regulators. You know, and, and I'll, I'll jump in, you know, because I, I think there's, I think there's a mul there's multiple components that's, that's associated with this, right? One of course is um, uh, what the regulators are, are going to require, um, you know, as that data is, is being applied, because of course the regulators are going to make, want to make sure that we're protecting the policyholder and all of this, right? Um, you know, so uh, there has to be an element of consistency um, in how that data is being leveraged, but also how the model um, is being applied as well and consistency and how it's feeding in the model in order to make sure that you're not getting that bias or discriminatory nature of, 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 of how you're using that information. Now, with that said, I think there's another component that creates more of a human component to this, right? Because remember, there are humans that are building the predictive models and how the models are leveraging that data and that information. Meaning that when you're, when you're building a model um, your bias may wind up being reflected in the model that you're building, right? You know, so um, I, I think that is the, the other element that we have to be extremely cognizant of. You know, we've seen that um, in, uh, in, in auto insurance, for example, with the use of credit scores and the outsized impacts of credit scores for, community, for, for communities of color, for example, right? And, and that's one example where you know, um, there. While, while, while I think um, credit scores may be very specific, uh, when you start to you know circle that around a certain community, a certain geography, or so on, that's where the bias of whoever has potentially defined that model can may may wind up playing into the, the, the development of how that was pieced together. So you know, in, in my mind, you know, I, I absolutely um, you know think through uh, around like the consistency and the, and the accountability um, you know in order to make sure that it's non-biased but I also like to remind folks hey we have to think about who's defining this to make sure that as it's being built that there's multiple perspectives that's you know that that's creating that in order to try to drive out some of the bias and um, discrimination that that can be put in place in the event that that data is being used in that way yeah yeah, and who's training that AI and who's validating the results and saying, oh, we, you know, we didn't accept these results. We need to change the model. Everyone has biases, regardless of what they are, conscious or otherwise. So it's invariably in there. Yeah, there's people building it. So we do need that more front and center. Um, Janet, before we move on to the next question, is there anything that you wanted to add to this? Or you Just to concur with everyone and the behavior has to be non-discriminatory and that's the baseline. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, it's a, it's a key point. Um, 
I, I saw a few questions on this and based on the time and the scale of question, I have a feeling this may be the last one we get to. Hard to believe we're almost coming up on the hour. Um, but this is around the question, Stephanie, I think you sort of were hinting at this a bit in the question of like, are we, you know, if we've been asking something, is that really the litmus test for whether we need data for it or not? Um, the question is this balance between getting the outside data and trying to pre-fill things or not have to go through the manual exercise versus uh, at some point, you know, you, you take in that data, you do the underwriting, is the product fit anymore? So is the product actually fit for the market and, you know, able to your opening comment about the nature of risk changing and the exposures changing? If our products were developed even five years ago, but let's be realistic, probably the core of the products that most of us are working with are 50 or more years old. Um, the, the concept behind them certainly is even older than that. Is that product still fit for purpose, regardless of what data we can pull into the underwriting or not? And maybe some of this third-party data and the newer models are going to bring that to a head where we realize our sense of the risk no longer can fit into this rating model anymore. Um, I'd, I'd love to just hear some thoughts about that is, are we going to bump up against the limits of the product suite that we have? And do we need to reconceive what we're underwriting with in the first place? So I'll, I'll, I'll kick us off on that topic. I think the answer is yes. A lot of these products, um, the concepts were developed some decades ago and the what might be fit for purpose in the risk at that time? It's very, I mean, you could take a very basic approach of saying like, oh, like with DNO insurance, originally it was just for the individual DNOs, and now you introduced in the entity coverage and now you have the non-indemnifiable side of the house. So it's evolved. And I think that's the point is it's not just the product that has to evolve it's the data that has to evolve. It's the question set. It's the underwriting analysis that has to evolve because, for example, looking at an employee handbook for EPLI insurance, like that's great. That's going to tell you whether or not they have a handbook, but it's not going to tell you whether or not they execute it and they comply with it. And so in our, we don't necessarily pay our underwriters to read 100-page employee handbooks. But the point of the matter is when EPLI was first started, that was a fundamental question, but it's evolved. And I think we constantly need to challenge ourselves to say, what's the so what here? Why does it matter? What is it going to get me? And need to focus on the 80% versus the 20% because underwriters are inherently trained to focus on the outliers, but that's not cost effective for us. So we need to help steer them and guide them into focusing on the 80%. Yeah, you know, Stephanie, I think that's a, that's a really great point, you know, and, and even as I think about, hey, we'll, we'll have, is, is the product fit, you know, for what we're seeing today and, um, you know, with, with all of the, the, the capabilities and the technologies around us, um, I just say let's point back to something I mentioned a little bit earlier, um, you know, the, the fourth quarter of last year, um, you know, all the way through this year and, and, and the cyber risk that, that we've been seeing and that significant, um, you know, issues with all of the bad actors that's been driving ransomware uh, across all industries that we've been serving to the point where, you know, um, this year they're getting 80% plus rate 
on cyber policies, right? So essentially the, the industry has been looking at pricing as a way to solve that, whereby pricing necessarily isn't the only way to do so. You have to go back not only to your core product, but the capabilities that you're putting around the product in order, in order to support that. You know, so, so for example, why not partner with an organization like, um, you know, Guidewire, and I know you guys are, have acquired science a, a, a few years ago, and, you know, leverage the, the ability for science to go out into the ethosphere, understand, um, you know, the, 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 the third party gaps or, or the gaps that could be surrounding the policyholder, you know, score them and then pair that with the cyber policy but continue to, to, to take that and, and move it forward, right? So in essence, it's not only the base insurance product, but you're leveraging other products and capability in order to support that rapidly transforming risk that we've seen, especially with, a, especially with something that's been evolving so rapidly like cyber. Yeah. I'll buy you lunch later, Abel, for plugging me. <laughs> <laughs> What's well, not as simple as charging more. Fundamentals are changing, yeah. Exactly. I would Dan, just briefly add yeah. that um, the natural outcome of the exercise that we have partnered with our underwriting teams to do the due diligence review is for the underwriters now that they're displaying every keystroke to us and our partners, then they question why. And that's a healthy question. And then we bring it back around to the business leads and the chief underwriting officers and the actuaries. And we can now have those discussions. But based on the volumes of submissions, if we weren't stepping back to say, what is on your desk? And what do you do each and every time you have a new business submission and you have a renewal? And seeing that is giving us the opportunity to take it to the next level, which is, should we still be doing it that way or can we move on to additional alternatives for the team? Yeah. And I was just gonna say, oh, go ahead, Brian. No, 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 Eugenia, all you, yeah. Okay, no, I was just gonna, yeah, I was just not, it's more agreement and piling on, but I think there are layers, right? I think the notion, like this notion of pre-fill, which took my, I was like, what's pre-fill? Pre just the sense that we could automate things that people, meaning consumers, brokers, or, or um, underwriters wouldn't have to rekey, right? But then, but you still have in a pre-fill, like the concept, the definition, you still have the, the form, the application form itself, right? And the application form itself assumes that the ap applicant actually can answer the question, that they understand the questions and can answer, can answer things that would help you inform how you would sort of underwrite their risk or price their risk, right? But in the case of like cyber, they don't actually know. That's the problem, right? It's not, it's not that there's like a thousand questions you want to ask. They don't know. The person who's selling the form may or may not know a key element that would impact how risk, like whether they would be sort of a victim or a high frequency victim of ransomware because it would be how attractive is the target, their up, their how up-to-date their technology is, sort of compliance with their whether they have the right kinds of like um, security uh, roles filled, whether they have, you know, so, so you know, and, and I think that cyber is the easiest to sort of wrap your head around in terms of how complex this problem can be. But I think we've talked about it internally around even what Stephanie talked about earlier, EPLI, right? How can you assess a company's compliance with their own procedures um, 
without sort of like if you because if you ask it in an application, I can auto I can as a technology provider I can automate that for you. The answer is yes, right? Do you comply with your your hundred page like manual? Yes, click yes, right? That's that's prefill, right? But 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 the actual compliance level with that and sort of the the sort of posture of the company may require a little bit more digging and that's not a form or a pre-fill. Yeah. Well, I think there's uh there's no time left, but there is maybe a, a parting idea from all this is this notion of challenging what we've been doing and why we've been doing it, whether it's our operations, you know, Janet had some some great examples of the work that Allied World and, and that a lot of us have been doing in that front. Yeah. Um, the questions we're asking, why we're asking them, you know, Stephanie, to your point, to the point Eugene was just making, Abel, your, your whole point on the exposure. And it's not about, you know, well, how much wiggle room do we have in our rating plan? Can we just charge them more for it? Because now they're doing more online. Well, they also kind of slept walked into that or they were being reactive in it which feels like you're going to be far more at risk from a cyber standpoint than if this was a concerted, like we're pushing online and we're doing it this way. And because they were as reactive as we've all had to be. So the nature of exposures changed. Is the product even fit for purpose? Are we thinking about it the right way? And why ask some of these questions when the answer is, of course, they're complying. What else are they going to say? Right. And every professional liability app that asks, do you use contracts? What's the answer going to be? And do you abide by your contracts? Of course I do until that lawsuit comes in and then you realize, well, yeah, maybe not exactly. We need to rethink what we've been doing. Um, and, and if nothing else, this is a time where I think that question has been brought front and center. Fantastic conversation. We got through literally half of the questions that people asked, and that's only because I was doubling up saying, well, we kind of answered both of these. So it's being generous. Um, fantastic uh, engagement from the attendees. So thank you for that and to our panel. Great conversation, Stephanie, Eugene, Janet, Abel. Thank you all so much for today. Thank you for having us. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Insurance Innovators Unscripted Podcast. This was part two of the Reuters event of transforming insurance and underwriting in the scope of what's happening in this new world. You know, I do want to thank Brian Falchek um, for being the moderator here. You know, if uh, you do enjoy, you know, just hearing him speak and his thought, you know, also go out there and pick up his book, you know, just look him up, Brian Falchek on LinkedIn. Um, you know, you have a lot of information. So thanks for listening and we'll see you soon.